Hello and welcome to another edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast. My name is John Porch, the editor at the Leaders Performance Institute and your host for today. How are you? I hope you're well. This is our first edition of 2020 and this year we're placing a particular focus on leadership and culture and coaching and development. Certainly areas that are both very dear to our hearts here at the Leaders Performance Institute and hopefully yours too. That's certainly the case for today's guest, Andy Friend, who's the head coach at Connacht Rugby in the Pro 14. Andy is a long-time friend of leaders and a regular face at performance summits. Now, meeting and greeting members is always a pleasure, but this podcast afforded me the opportunity to speak to Andy for a little bit longer than might otherwise have been possible. And on the agenda for that conversation was his coaching journey so far as I look to pick out those best practice insights from down the years. And what a journey it's been for Andy, taking in coaching stints in his homeland in Australia, both at international and domestic level, as well as spells in Japan and England, before ending up on Ireland's beautiful west coast in 2018 with Connacht. He's now 27 years into a coaching career that has seen him serve as a skills coach, an assistant coach, and of course, as a head coach. He's seen it all, and it's not hard to see why Connacht, having won the Pro 12 League as it was in 2016, would turn to a coach with Andy's resume. A few short years ago, they were still a junior partner in Irish rugby, somewhat a team out on a limb in what is a strong Gaelic Games province. But then came that success in the same year as unfancied Leicester City won the Premier League in football across the Irish Sea in England. And now Andy's conduct is challenging on a regular basis at the top end of the sport. In this very episode, he admits there's still plenty of work to do. But this was a time for reflection. And before we get into the conversation, if you haven't already, remember you can sign up to be a member of the Leaders Performance Institute at leadersinsport.com forward slash performance where you'll find best practice insights in the fields such as the aforementioned leadership and culture, coaching and development, as well as human performance and data and innovation. This is probably a good time to tell you that our latest performance special report has landed, entitled Coachmaker, what the modern coach needs to know. It draws on specialist expertise from organizations such as Ulster Rugby, the Minnesota Timberwolves, and even the US Special Operations Command. This is an absolute must read for any coach in 2020. And now, on with the conversation with Andy Friend. Andy Friend, welcome to the Leaders Performance Podcast. Great to be on your podcast, John. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And perhaps I can kick things off by asking you to outline your coaching journey so far. Ultimately, what I'm getting at, Andy, is how does an Australian end up on the west coast of Ireland? It's a great question. Um, after 26 years of coaching, or 25 years when I got here, kind of presented an opportunity which I took with, with, with great optimism and I haven't been let down. It's been fantastic. But I've been on this coaching journey now, as I said, there for 25 years. It's taken me to, to now Ireland. But prior to that... Um, Three years at Harlequin, seven years in total in, in Japan with the Waratahs prior to that, with the Brumbies prior to that, with Aussie Sevens uh, and the Institute of Sport. So uh, I continue to say to people, I, I, I'm married to a, a very uh, patient and uh, and loving wife. We've, we've lived in 19 homes in 25 years now, so we're pretty good at moving around the world and we don't have much clutter. It's certainly an incredible story. And I've talked a little bit about the team in my introduction, but perhaps you can go into a bit more detail about why taking the Connacht job in 2018 represented such an enticing challenge for you. Yeah, well, Connacht, as you explained there, John, it's, it's one of four provinces in Ireland. We compete in the Pro 14 now. Um, it was the Pro 12 when they won it back in 2016. 
two additional teams from South Africa have been added to that, which is the, the Cheetahs and the Kings. So we have teams from Wales, four teams from Wales, uh, two teams from Italy, two teams from Scotland, two teams from South Africa, and, and then four, the four provinces of Ireland. So it's a great competition. When I was approached to, uh, to apply for the position, it was appealing because of the success that they'd had. The club was founded in 1885, and, and uh, as you alluded to before, it was basically the you know the, the whipping boy of Irish rugby, the the the, uh, the province that um, was there as a development province. It was it was viewed that way. Uh, Pat Lamb came in in 2012, I believe, and um, over four years he built the province up to go on go on and win a Pro 14, so or Pro 12 back then. So a lot of energy then generated around the game here. Um, West of Ireland is, is probably more well-known for its GAA affiliation. Lots of hurlers and lots of Gaelic football kids running around, but uh, Connacht's earned a place now um, in folklore within Pro 14 and, and uh, to be able to come into this province and, and to work with the Connacht rugby people um, was a great opportunity. As we've already mentioned, you've worked across a number of nations and with a number of cultures, Australia, Japan, England, now Ireland, we can tick them off as we go. What have you done to ease your transition into each of those cultures? Well, the first thing is uh, I'm coming into their culture, so they're not. I don't want them to try and replicate uh, the culture that we may have in Australia, and I think that's really important. You know, I think we're visitors here. I always come in and, and I'm, I'm forever looking for the things that I like within the culture that... Uh, there's something different that I haven't seen and, and things that um, I can sort of add into the into you know, my own tapestry, I suppose, of, 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 um, of life and things that I will take away in the future. So whenever I get somewhere, well, number one, coaching is all about people. It has to be about people. But then it's also then linking in with those people and, and, uh, and learning more about what makes them tick and what's important to them as people uh, within the, the respective areas of where they live. Are the players in each of those cultures different? Oh, without a doubt, they're all very different. Um, you know, really broadly, if you look at it, uh, Aussies are very brash, very aggressive, um, very forthright people. Uh, the Japanese are very submissive, very um, obedient, uh, very disciplined people. Um, the Irish are probably a, a combination somewhere in the middle of those. Um, and the English probably not not too dissimilar, but but maybe a bit more, bit more forthright in the way they think and and uh, and what they expect to happen. So every culture is very very different, um, and that's one of the exciting things about it. it. It's it's about you know arriving at that that new environment and trying to learn as quickly as you can the way people have been brought up and the way people will respond better to to certain messaging and and how you can fit in there and and uh, and try and make a difference. I wanted to take things back to your time at the Australian Institute of Sport when you were on the rugby pathway. What did that teach you in terms of your approaches towards high-performance sport? Well, I was really fortunate. That was back in, in 1994 um, that I joined. The, it was called the, the Coach on Scholarship Scheme, and it was brilliant. Unfortunately, it doesn't run anymore, but it was pretty much... Uh, you had to have had a diploma in, in, in coaching, which I'd done prior to that. Um, and then there were 17 coaches selected from 17 different sports, and we we were all sort of housed. We didn't have housing there, big pardon, but we were all um, we studied out of the Institute of Sport, and uh, we were doing a graduate diploma in coaching specifically for coaching. So we had 
coaches from ice hockey. We had coaches from water polo, from basketball, from netball to rugby to to athletics and so on and so forth. So it was a great sharing of ideas and, and thoughts of young, enthusiastic coaches who wanted to make it to the top. And at the same time, you were then studying uh, to be a, a better coach, the theoretical side of that. But, you know, brilliant role models were brought in to talk to us about coaching and their experiences and all the rest of it. So it, it, was, a, it was a fantastic program and I was lucky enough to, to have a year in that. At the same time, I was also coaching because rugby was a was a program within the Institute of Sport at that time, and there were it was a satellite program. But there were seven players who were uh, housed within Canberra or came from Canberra region. Um, four of those young men you will never have heard of, but three of them you may well have heard of. One was Justin Harrison, who played for Ulster and, and played for the Wallabies. One was Joe Roth, who was arguably one of Australia's uh, greatest wingers ever. And one was Stephen Larkin, who's now currently coaching at, at Munster and, and went on to, to win a World Cup and and uh, and basically cement his name in, in rugby, rugby folklore. So I was lucky enough that those three men were in that program as, as, as young, budding rugby players coming through. So I was working with them as well as all the educational stuff that was going on. And um, it was just a, you know, a really rich environment. And did that experience at the Institute help to build your understanding on the sports science side of elite performance? Yeah, there was a lot of theory in that. So a lot of work on physi- physi- physiology and anatomy, a lot of work on, on the biomechanics of an athlete, and a lot of work on recovery techniques and, um, you know, and, and, and so on. And remember, this is, this is nearly 30 years ago. Uh, so, you know, uh, uh, those, the, the, the nutritional side of things, the recovery side of things, um, they're all new back then and and uh, but it was it was really it really opened my eyes and the other coaches there opened my eyes to this whole new world of of what it would take to be a, an elite sports person and, and an elite sports coach so if I look back on it now very very fortunate to have gone through that program and and uh, and learned a great deal out of it you've made the jump from being a skills coach to being an assistant coach to finally being a head coach what were some of the key attributes that enabled you to make such a success of each transition? Yeah, and they're all very, very different. Um, I, you know, if, if you think about the skills coach, and I, I, I remember vividly as a skills coach at the end of a game because you're dealing with the micro, and at the end of the game, you could, I could tell you, you know, if I was looking at the halfback, for example, I could tell you virtually every pass that halfback made, the ones where it was really sweet, and the ones where he may have got his foot in the wrong position and so on and so forth. You then move into assistant coach and you're normally given an area. So my area initially was attack and I was the attack coach. Um, when I was the attack coach, I couldn't tell you what the I couldn't tell you what the, the halfback was doing now or any of the players per se, but I could tell you exactly the flow of the game and, and where we needed to attack because you looked at it slightly removed and, and you know, just sort of opening up the, your eyes a little bit more to, to what else was going on. But I couldn't have told you what the defence was doing because my whole focus was on attack. And then when you move into head coaching, I couldn't tell you the specifics of the attack or the defence, certainly not what the halfback was doing, but I could give you an overview of the game and, and you know, the way, the flow of the game. And, and then, and, and on top of that, um, and probably more importantly, um, a really, really uh, close working relationship with, all other staff, um, and and getting to know the players that you know the men that you're dealing with there, what makes them tick, 
you know, what their goals and aspirations are, uh, what their weapons are in terms of what skills can they be world class at in their view and and obviously in our view too when we we shared that those conversations what are their key work ons um, but in terms of specifics of the game no I couldn't tell you so much about that so with every position there's a there's a new set of glasses you put on and a new lens you watch it through and and they're all uh, in their own ways they're all unique and, and special but uh, I must say now as a head coach I, I really enjoy uh, the head coaching side of things. How does the mindset change as a head coach going in each morning as opposed to when you were a skills coach? It must change things, right? Oh, totally. Like, you know, as a head coach, I'm, we've got some great assistant coaches with us at the moment. So I'm not necessarily focused in on the details that happen on the football field. I'm more working with the, you know, with the, the mindset of people um, to get them onto that football field. And not necessarily zoned in on what they're going to do when they're on there, because you know that'll that that comes from our assistant coaches. And I know if I'm if I'm working with the individual correctly, uh, and they've got the confidence to get out there, then whatever it is they're going to do is going to be very special. So, yeah, when I turn up on the, on a on a normal work day, um, I'm not necessarily thinking about this move we're going to run off this line at or this defensive line that we need to we need to pressurise the opposition with. I'm thinking about. Geez, I wonder how that bloke slept last night because I knew he was crook or I knew his wife was crook and I got to dial in with him and make sure he's okay. And same time, this bloke missed selection yesterday, so I need to check in with him and make sure his head's still up because we may need him next week and, and so on and so forth. So it's all the, all the additional things that are going on around the game rather than the game itself. Knowing what you now know, how do you make sure you give personal development opportunities to your staff at Connacht? Well, I, I believe in... Uh, giving people the opportunity to express themselves and, and for them to, you know, if you're a, if you're the defence coach, I'm not here to tell you how to run defence. You're the defence coach, and I want you to go and run it. I'll have a view on it potentially, but um, if, if yeah, that's your job to to, to do that. So uh, very much um, giving them autonomy to go and and run the program that that they're employed to go and run. So uh, I think that's a, that's the first thing. Now I as a as an assistant coach. I had that occasionally. I didn't have it all the time. And the reason I therefore work in that manner is because to me, the greatest head coaches that I worked under were the coaches that trusted me and allowed me to go and, and, and put my stamp on things. Now, if my stamp at that time uh, wasn't working, by all means, they, they, they could pull me in and they'd say, hey, listen, it's, it's not working at the minute. You need to have a rethink about that. But if it was working, then um, you know you you get the pat on the back and you'd say, "Fantastic effort there, off you go." I also work with other coaches, which was, "You're the attack coach or the defence coach, and here's how I want you to coach." And it wasn't my way of coaching. I always say, "You know, if you walk into a, a restaurant, um, in my view, you're mad not to look at the chef, the chef's specialties, because that's what he's good at doing." Um, so why would you try and pick something that he's not good at doing? Now, it's not to say he won't be good at doing that, but you know he's already listed it there for you. He's good at doing that. So I normally try and pick off the, speci the chef's specialties menu because you know he's happy to say, this is what I'm good at doing. So let him, let him do that and you'll probably have a good meal. That's a very good point, And I'm going to bear it in mind next time I dine out. But I wanted to turn the conversation back to the players, Andy. There's a lot of talk these days about understanding player motivations, their so-called why for playing. 
In your experience, what are some of the ways you can establish what makes a player tick? And how can you use that as a head coach in your day-to-day -day training? Well, the first thing is you've got to get to know the player. Uh, yeah, and that sounds really simple, but um, in, in saying that, you know, how many people actually do spend the time to get to know your player? Uh, you know, one of the first things I do when I, when I arrive at a club and at the start of every year, every season and during the season, um, I, I, I sit down with every player individually. There's normally a little um, questionnaire that I, I send out and, and it will vary upon, depending upon how long I've been at that program. But, you know, it asks questions like, what is your weapon, i.e. what is the skill you can be world-class at? What is your one or two key work-ons on and off the football field that if you get better at that, you're going to be a better version of yourself? Um, what are the three most important things to you in your life? What are the things, what are your goals and aspirations for this year? What are your goals and aspirations in three years' time? If you, could, if you had three words to describe yourself right now, what would it be? What are your three aspirational words? And so on and so forth. All these questions that, you know, that, that I've used over the years. Um, so I give them that, that, question, that, that sheet. They fill it out. Uh, they come back in. We sit down and we have a half-hour conversation. And it's amazing what comes out of that conversation. I open up about... You know, they may ask me questions about what, you know, what are the three words that, that, that describe me now. But basically, we, we're just building rapport and we're building genuine rapport. And, and, and then as we go through the season, you can dial back into some of those things, um, check in on the weapons and work-ons that they're working on, check in on their aspirational words you know, with, with the three things that, that uh, they most love. And I will say the Irish, um, virtually to a man, the number one thing that... that uh, is most important to them in the world is their family so really important then that we invite the family in and we get the family in. so you know we 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 open up connaught rugby to the families of, of these young men because you can see how much it means to them so uh it, it yeah to answer your question i think the the most important thing you must invest time in the individual and if you can invest if you're prepared to invest time in the individual and truly listen truly listen to what they're saying and try and support them in their goals and aspirations. That's as much of a why than anybody wants, in my view. Um, so I really try and do that for, for the individuals and you know, we, we tend to have pretty strong relationships. And they always say that if you can reach the person, then you can reach the athlete, right? I, I think the most important thing there is to reach the man because, you know, again, we, we all, we're all human and, and we need to, we need to believe in, in the program. We need to believe in the system. We need to believe in the people that are trying to guide us in that. Um, so, yeah, a lot of time is spent on the individual. I think the other important thing is, uh, is being really upfront and 100% and transparent with wherever they're at within the program. So if you're going to miss selection, you will never hear about it other than first coming from me. And you'll, you'll hear it the night before and it will be, you know, if I'm, if I'm talking to you, John, you know, John, i uh, got some bad news for you, mate. You've missed selection today for these reasons. Bang, bang, bang. What I need you to do is ABC. Uh, I'm sure you're going to be disappointed. Come in and see me tomorrow if you need to have a further chat. End of story. Simple. Straight to the point. Bang. Um, if you've gained selection, you'll get a similar call. G'day, John. Got great, great news for you, mate. You've been selected in the, in the start in match day 23. Um, well done. You've got in there for these reasons. Bang, bang, bang. Keep doing that, buddy. And I wish you all the best on the weekend. See you later. And those conversations happen every week.
with our players. So they know that they're, they're being treated fairly, um, they're respected, they, they, they're given information, whether it's positive or negative, and they've got something to go away and work on. Turning the focus back to the team, you're looking to develop season on season, of course, and there are clear signs that you're doing that at Connacht, but what goes into creating an optimal learning environment for your players? How do you ensure they're exposed to adversity or maybe even failure if we term it that way? How are you providing learning experiences that resonate with them? Well, I think in any sporting program, um, there's adversity. Every week, you're going to find out whether you're in the team or not in the team. Every week, there's going to be someone else pick up a new injury. Every week, uh, you, 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 you may win, win a game, but you may well lose a game too. So there's, you know, there's all these, these, these different factors that, um, that present varying, varying stages or varying levels of adversity and also elation and, and success as well. So we're forever managing that. But to me... Um, you need to have a safe environment. How do you have a safe environment? A lot of it around these relationships. But you've also got to have a, an environment where the culture is exactly what you want that, that place to be. And to me, culture underpins everything within a sporting program. Every sporting program has a culture, but is it the culture that you want? And I reckon that's the greatest challenge for a head coach is to make sure that you've got the culture that you believe is going to best serve the program you're working in and get the success that you're looking for. So you feel that the culture optimises the learning opportunities for your players? 100% it does. 100% it does. And, and uh, you know, it's an easy word to say. It's a hard word to get right, culture. As I said there before, it's every place has got a culture, but is it the culture that you want? Culture to me is defined by the things you do when no one's looking. So when nobody's looking, what are you doing? And... And I can tell you, we're not there yet at Connet. We're getting there. We've, we've, we've made some massive strides in, in, uh, in making sure we've got the right behaviours and habits um, that, that sit to a, a, a set of values or a set of behaviours that, that um, the group, not Andy Friend, but the group came up with, our leadership group. We're working really hard on the leadership stuff. I think everyone talks now about leaders, but how many people spend... Uh, genuine time in developing leaders and 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 working with young men around what is leadership and what their style of leadership is and then giving them the space to actually be that leader to me is so so important so you know we're, we're working with uh, with a, uh, a guy called John Cunahan who's been brilliant for us um, he's our performance and leadership coach he comes in he's got a syllabus for our leaders they work on that syllabus. We, we meet with our leaders once a week. They have autonomy in, in various areas. And, and that's all part of this culture where it's, as I said, it's not my program, it's our program. And collectively, if we get it right, we can be so, so powerful. So, but it, but it is, you know, there's a lot of moving parts to that to try and get the thing right. Absolutely. And as much as you talk about leadership groups, it's also about self-leadership as well, right? Yeah, and I, it, it, listen, it all comes down to the individual. Um, because you can have a culture, but other people might not buy into it and they may not want to listen to it. But So it comes down to the individual. They need to believe in it, but they've also got to have the discipline and the habits to drive themselves. I, I, I say continuously to those players, the best coach you'll ever have is yourself. He's the one that knows you better than anybody else. He's the one that when you look in that mirror, you know you can't tell him any fibs because he knows exactly what you've done. 
and you've got to make sure you you're able to look in that mirror and 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 be really honest with it with yourself and and know that you're doing everything you can be doing so um yeah we we work on the habits uh, habits off the football field and the habits on the football field uh, again a simple word to talk about but um, if you've got the wrong habits uh, they can lead you down a a very deep pit if you've got the right habits that can be the compound interest of success in, you know, later on in life so we work really hard in trying to adjust the players habits working with them on that challenge them on the, what their habits are the simple things about the time you go to bed you know the the uh, your recovery techniques uh the, the food you eat the people you hang out with blah, 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 the list goes on and on and on we call them no talent required ta- habits so no talent required to to, uh, to turn up uh, in the footy at the footy field, well slept, um, well you know nutritioned up, ready to go, having done all your prep to perform stuff, and to walk into that thing with a smile on your face and, and start positive conversations. Not an ounce of talent required to do that. That's a mindset, and that becomes a habit. So we work really hard on in, on on trying to educate the players on what those habits are. Um, and at the end of the day, it comes down to the individual whether he or she wants to do that. Ultimately, that must help when you're trying to bring new players into the squad too. Really important, you know, new players come in and, and, uh, and this is where we're at at the moment. New players come in and, you know, they'll meet myself and they'll meet the other coaches and the other staff. But more importantly, they'll meet the leaders and the leaders will say, and by the way, this is, this is how we do things around here. This is what we expect. And if you can think back to, you know, as a, as a young athlete, um, your coach will tell you something, you listen to it, you go, okay, he's the boss, I hear that. A peer tells you and you go, I ain't, I ain't not doing that because you want to be accepted in the change room. And if, if, if your peers are strong enough um, to be able to deliver that message and live the behaviours that they're talking about, uh, it becomes a really, really powerful culture. I wanted to ask you a question about alignment. Everyone seems to be talking about alignment at the moment, but how do you ensure that you're not just paying lip service to the notion and actually bringing your coaches and performance staff together? Well, I think, um, yeah, we, we, we have a lot of meetings within the coaching setup. We have a lot of meetings as a, as a staff, you know, cross, cross fertilization of ideas from athletic performance into medical and so on and so forth. Um, again, a lot of autonomy given to the heads of department there. So, uh, you know, and, and then we collectively meet and we discuss those things. So um, I, I feel like we've got a very open uh, environment there where people are entitled to have autonomy and, and, and can um, try things and, and challenge things. But at the, at the same time, as long as they fit within those behaviours that we've collectively agreed to, then we're going to be okay. We are going to be aligned. So it's not a really, you said, the most important thing is you stick to the, the four key behaviours that we've, we we said that we want to be able to live by. And, and yeah, within that bandwidth, you can go for your life, but stay within that. You make an interesting point there. Do you believe that you and your coaching staff need to embody those same habits as the players? Oh, totally. Yeah, there's no point us talking it and not doing it ourselves. Um because that doesn't have any legs, you know. You know, I, I think if you're if you're if you're going to ask a player to do something, you've got to be prepared to do it yourself. Um, so we we challenge. Well, I certainly challenge myself on that all the time with individual staff. Um, yep, our lives are different. Like you're at different stages of your lives. So 
you know, for a lot of our staff, they've got kids and, and partners and, and, you know, that's, that's different to a young free single man too. So, you know, there's, there's differences there without a doubt, but, you know, within reason, I think it's, you have to, you know, in order to live in a, an elite sporting environment and to be, um, to want to be respected and listened to, you, you've got to adhere to a lot of the things that we're asking these young blokes to be doing. And what about data? In rugby union, where do you feel the balance sits between your coach and I and the data that comes your way? I don't think you should ever lose the critical eye of a coach. I think that's a that's an intuition and a feeling that over time gets gets sharpened and, and is really, really important, um, especially during the game. There's moments during the game when something just tells you, no, we've got to make a change there. And, and if you stop trusting that um, and you start looking for numbers to give you justification on it, um, I don't believe it, it, you're, uh, you, you're coaching correctly. I think you, you've got to have that intuition. At the same time, we so we use numbers and data now. Uh, we use a lot in our retention and recruitment of players to have a look at how they compare to others that we may be wanting to recruit or whether we're, we've actually got the right players to be retaining. We use a lot of it there. We use some of it to, to, uh, to guide the players on their weapons and work-ons and to give us some some advancement on certain skill sets. Um, but, you know, and some of it actually in terms of looking at uh, referees, what their uh, nuances are, because that's a massive thing within within rugby union at the moment. A little bit in opposition, but in all honesty, that you know, a number of stuff at, the, at, at this point in time within Connacht Rugby is predominantly being used for recruitment and retention more than anything else. You're coming up to two years at Connacht now, Andy, and so it seems like a good time to ask, what have been some of your biggest lessons so far? The first thing that I would have to say um, has tripped me up a couple of times now is the power of that weather. And it sounds silly. You know, I, I sit here and, and uh, you know pretty much what's coming in Connacht. You know there's going to be wind and rain. It's not necessarily here that, that that's happened to us, but we try and play a very expansive game of rugby. Um, but it, we've, been, we've been caught a couple of times and, and I've delivered the wrong the wrong strategy to the players, assuming that that game was going to be different because of wind and rain and it wasn't, and then not being able to change it quickly enough and therefore suffering a, a loss because of our ambition to play in in wind and rain and all the rest of it. So that would be one from a, a technical, tactical coaching point of view. It's, you know, it's, a, it's a lesson that hopefully I don't fail on that one again, but that's certainly been one. Probably the other biggest one, it's... It's in that retention and recruitment area on knowing that, you know, for 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 Connacht, uh, we are really, really, really keen to support the West of Ireland players. So we have a, a percentage of Connacht Indigenous players that we want to come through. Um, but that also, because we don't have a lot of Connacht rugby players, we don't have a lot of, we've got a, we've got a, a large portion, but certainly not what a Leinster would have. Uh, in terms of a pool to be able to pull from. Um, yeah, that's a tough balance because you're in this game to win. Uh, we're all competitive, you want to win, but at the same time, there's a there's a bigger beast at, at play here and that is to make sure Connacht keeps its identity. So Indigenous, homegrown Connacht players is really important to us and it's up for us now to, to, to select those men and then to, to, to try and polish the rough diamond. It'd be easier to go and find an easier diamond somewhere else that may be better at, a, at an earlier point in time, but you need the discipline to say, no, we're in Connacht. 
we're going to we're going to support Connet people. And I think if you get that right and you do polish the diamond up, it's going to be so much richer when you do win. You're going to get that mutual commitment and loyalty to the jersey, aren't you? Yeah, you are. And, and you know, I, I, I'm a big, big believer in academies. I'm a big, big believer in, in, in and I always say, grow, growing your own vegetables. You've got to, you've got to grow your own vegetables because a, it's it. Uh, well, firstly, it's cheaper. You, you know, you're bringing young blokes through. But secondly, and more importantly, you've got alignment. You, you can you can get your cultural pieces into into younger players when they come in. Um, they are homegrown. You know, they've they've got skin in the game because. You know, they're, they're from Sligo or from Leitrim or from wherever within within Connacht. Um, and it means so much to them to pull that jersey on. So I'm a big, big believer in academies and, and we've got a great academy at the moment um, under Eric Oldwood and, and uh, you know, it's starting to produce the goods. You've touched upon the tactical, but in getting to know your players, you're partially playing the role of a psychologist, it would seem. Maybe more so than coaches in previous generations even. With that in mind, how do you see the role of the head coach developing in rugby over the next decade or so? Yeah, well, there's. I think a lot of it's down to the individual too. Um, you know, and, and every head coach is going to have strengths or director of rugby, whichever you want to call them. They'll have strengths in certain areas. And I think what's important, similar to what we say to the players, what's your weapon? And make sure you zone in on what you're good at. So there'll be some head coaches who are extremely tactical and technical around the way they coach. And if that's what you are, go and be that. And and you might have to polish up and you might have a few little work-ons around, for example, the relationship side of things or emotional intelligence side of things. You may need to work on that. But I believe, I'm a firm believer that, you know, zone in on what you're good at and 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 try and be the best, the best you can at that. Um, so I, I don't think it's – I do think within the whole program, though, you're going to need someone who's extremely tactical and technical. You're going to need somebody who's got that psychological approach to the player and around relationships. Um, you're going to need, you know, you're going to need those two. That they're probably the two main ones. There's a whole host of other little things that go on within a, a program too. But I think for head coaching, it's what works for you. Um, zone in on that and, and try and be the best version of that you can be. You'd say the head coach, or indeed any coach, needs a highly developed sense of self-awareness then. Massively, I think yeah, that's that's uh, that's probably the most important thing. And I, I also think the head coach needs to understand that um, he doesn't have all the answers. He or she does not have all the answers. And it, as soon as you you are comfortable with that, saying I'm not here to deliver the answers, I'm here to ask the questions. And to me, that's something that I've learnt over the years of coaching. Uh, I'll ask the powerful questions and hopefully get the answers because the answers are out there. I don't have them all, but I'll ask the, the right questions that will allow the answers to come out. And, and for me, that's, that's been a, um, a great learning and, and one that I, I continue to try and live by. That seems like a great place to wrap things up. Andy, friend, thank you very much for your time today. Good on you, John. Thank you. 